and welcome to the Friday, January 10th, 2020 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, the state of the race and the legislature coming. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Brett Hayworth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper Statehouse Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. First up, the state of the race. The clock is ticking on Democrats' Iowa caucus campaigns, not just on the 24 days left until February 3rd, but the midnight deadline for candidates to make the final cut for the January 14th Democratic National Committee debate in Des Moines. Tom Steyer slid in, slid in under the wire last night. Andrew Yang and Cory Booker were holding out hope uh, to make the stage when I talked to them earlier this week. Right now, in addition to Steyer, the other qualifiers are Biden, Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, Sanders, and Warren. And we're going to talk about that upcoming debate. But first, Brett, uh, tell us about a rare, rarely seen species in Iowa this caucus cycle, the Republican candidate. You covered William Weld this week. Uh, what has he got to say, and how worried should Trump be about the nomination? Right, yeah. So that, for me, that was, so as far as rarely seen, for me, this was the first time I've, I had the chance um, to cover one of the, the very few Republican challengers who are running against um, Trump, and uh, Bill Weld was in Sioux City yesterday and toured a, um, a health center and then went on to Denison, and I guess he was in the state for, I think he said, about four days with various events this week. And uh, again, that was the first time that he'd been in, in Sioux City, so I had not been able to see him previously, and Joe Walsh is another, uh, he's a former senator from Illinois who's also running, and he was in Sioux Center a couple months ago, but I wasn't able to cover him. So I, I was interested to, you know, to see this rare species, as you say, um, in person, and um, he uh, talked um, uh, quite a bit about Trump, you know, um, about the how he sees Trump as unfit for office, and he absolutely thinks that Trump should be uh, removed, uh, impeached, uh, removed by when the Senate votes, um, presumably this month, and uh, talked about all the reasons why he thought Trump was not fit for office with the way he uh, speaks about various um, groups in the, of, of U.S. society and you know, various groups of people, sorry, and um, just has a very um, kind of jumps from spot to spot as far as any policy or, you know, any distinct or, you know, uh, real detailed policy, just, you know, Trump just being Trump and, you know, being on the fly for, you know, making his decisions on, you know, without, as well said, you know, not well thought out and just kind of knee jerk. But um, he, um, as far as being worried, you know, (laughs) there's, there's, you know, there should be no worry for, for Trump. And, And we got a little bit into, um, how some of the primary uh, states, uh, Wisconsin was one this week, where um, people like Weld won't, aren't going to be able to be on the ballot for the primary election. Um, and there's going to be about a half dozen states, I believe, um, where Walsh and Weld won't be able to be on, on the ballot. And, and um, Weld said, well, that's because Trump basically owns the state parties, and the state parties can set, in, in some way, in some states can set who gets to be on the ballot, and um, you know, therefore they're looking to to have no competitors on the ballot to just make it an easy pass for Trump. And um, of course, Well doesn't like that. As far as the Iowa caucuses, um, uh, that shouldn't be a problem. You know, he said 
and we, you know, there's no expectation that he's going to somehow upset Trump or even, you know, do be much more than a blip. I would imagine at, at the caucuses, but he did, he did, he did um, feel good about the Iowa caucuses and, and praise them, I guess, so to speak. In that, it, it it looks like it would be, you know, an open door. At least he can compete. Well, that's good news. So I, I guess if he gets elected president, he'll probably protect the caucuses. Right. Status. <laughs> look, uh, look at yeah. look at what they did for me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as you mentioned, Joe Walsh also is running and uh, says he's competing for the nomination, although he's been scarce except on Twitter. Um, CBS News was out with a poll this week, and, and most attention was given to the three-way tie in Iowa between uh, Biden, Buttigieg, and, and Sanders. But what I found interesting, and when you look deep into it, is the CBS asked 953 registered Democrats how much they use social media, and 24% said they use Facebook um, a lot, um, Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram a lot. 29% said some use. Only 9% used Twitter a lot, and 74% said not ever or not much. Um, Todd, considering the president's propensity for tweeting, uh, would the Twitter numbers be reversed for Republicans? It's possible, although, you know, it's. It, are you are you telling me that the uh, the Democrats that I see on Twitter don't represent a majority opinion? That's well, that's just hard to believe. I can't I can't he- wrap my head around that. Yes, it, it's it's hard to believe that um, that's not the the voice of the party and the voice of the nation uh, that we were hearing on Twitter. Yeah, and you'd also notice in the poll that, like, uh, Elizabeth Warren didn't have 80% of the votes. So, yeah. So that that might be another indication that Democratic Twitter is not exactly the the leading indicator. Uh, yeah, well, uh, either that or the Republicans, they just see the tweets on Fox. They, maybe well, they don't could... have to join Twitter. Yeah, yeah. They just. But that's interesting. I mean, you can see why uh, both, you know, political campaigns that want to get their message out there and also the sort of nefarious bots choose Facebook because there are a lot more, a lot more, uh, it's a more target rich environment for their messages than, than Twitter. Although there are bots on Twitter. I think I have many of them following me. So if only 9% of, uh, these Iowa Democrats are on Twitter, um, I, it's sort of like uh, John McCain used to say about, you know, family and friends. I mean, it, it must be the <laughs> campaign staff and, and the candidates themselves or something. I, I don't know. Um, I just I found those numbers interesting. Uh, now back to that Democratic race. Amy, uh, over the past week, you saw Steyer, who just got a spot on the debate stage. Klobuchar, who seems to be the best bet to be a, the breakout candidate of this cycle. And Biden, who's the, the national frontrunner. After seeing these uh, three different candidates on three sort of different levels or lanes in this race. What, what's your takeaway? Well, I wanted to, to go back to the Twitter thing, because even though people aren't on Twitter, they'll screenshot everything on Twitter and post it to Facebook. So people definitely are paying attention to what <laughs> is happening on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, all three candidates are still bringing in big crowds, even this late in the race, you know, even with just a few weeks to go. There's still voters who are making up their minds or even voters who are just kind of getting started late in the game, you know, trying to see as many as they can. I talked to a voter who sort of encapsulated that feeling, you know, their grandparent asked what the candidates are actually like after they go to these events and meet these candidates in person. So I think a, a fair amount of Iowans still feel this way, you know, that, that they have to meet these candidates in person to find out what they're quote unquote really like. And that's why these events continue to get such high turnout. I mean, as far as the messages, Steiner, I think, is still pushing a hey, get-to-know-me message. You know, he's definitely still talking about his 
biography more than the other candidates have been. They've moved on sort of from that. He's still talking about his, his overall policy positions. People are still asking him questions about his overall So he's still sort of in that meet voters stage at, at you know, 2 or 3% or whatever he happens to be in Iowa right now. Um, Klobuchar has is, is moved on to talking about more specific accomplishments in the Senate, which she's always talked about. She's been pretty good at detailing and, and categorizing those and, and sort of making that transition of, you know, I got this done with this person across the aisle. She talks especially about her bills that she's done with Grassley, um, which sort of, you know, position her as that moderate who can work across the aisle that people are sort of looking for in that camp. And then, of course, Biden um, has really pivoted to more of a broader um, you know, strength through unity appeal. Um, when he was at a, a Canvas launch this weekend, he was very much with, uh, you know, Abby Finkenauer, who newly endorsed him, talking about how they've both been able to sort of try to work across the aisle, try to, you know, work with moderates. I think especially for for Finkenauer, that's going to be really important as she goes into um, this election as well, positioning herself more of a moderate in what is very much a swing district. So I think, you know, they're, they're all still got different messages. Um, and as, you know, we're moving more into the surrogate travel, maybe we're going to see less of them and might be sort of the final messages that are going to lead them into the caucuses. Were any of them talking about the president's decision to kill uh, Soleimani, uh, the Iranian general? They all touched on that, and as you might imagine, they all had a very similar message. Um, obviously, that killing Soleimani was, you know, ultimately a good thing for the world, but ultimately a bad thing that um, they should have um, talked to Congress about. Especially Klobuchar being in the Senate was talking about the fact that Congress was not notified or consulted, um, and that she still wanted to see really some documentation. Um, and Styers talking about strategy. Uh, I think Biden is just talking about, you know, this is continuing to be his own siloed thing. We need to bring people together for unity. Did they bring it up on their own or were they asked about it? Um, I know I asked Biden about it in our one-on-one interview, so he did not bring it up in his Canvas launch. Klobuchar did bring it up. I think it had just happened um, the day before, and uh, Steyer brought it up during his, his speech as well, so... Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Saturday, uh, I covered Elizabeth Warren, and she didn't bring it up at all. Nobody asked about it either. But then, in a gaggle afterwards, reporters asked her about it, and, and uh, I mean, she had quite a bit to say at that point. But I just found it interesting that something that was really top of the news wasn't mentioned at all um, during her remarks, and and that no one brought it up. Uh, so I, I I don't know if that means people don't care or. Um, we're in agreement with what the president did. Um, I, you know, no way to tell. But uh, uh, I, I just thought it was interesting that she didn't talk about it at all. Brett, uh, you had uh, 2004 Democratic nominee John Kerry in Sioux City during the week uh, on the We Know Joe tour. Um, did it help to have the former Veep there? Did it help the former Veep to have an unsuccessful nominee campaigning for him? Uh, does it that seem like a good strategy? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe it couldn't hurt. That's a, an answer, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've talked before that the value of the surrogates is hard to is hard to pinpoint. Um, but I mean, certainly John Kerry is a high level surrogate. Um, you know, he himself he didn't win the presidency, as as you noted. Um, but he can point to you know that I I went through 
you know, the Iowa caucuses and, you know, the primary season and, and it ultimately became a nominee. And if you have, you know, another well-regarded nominee, and I think by all accounts, John Kerry is a well-regarded, you know, presidential candidate for Democrats, among Democrats, then, then that's a pretty good surrogate to have. Um, he, you know, he was very well-spoken. Um, he, he pointed out, essentially he was saying, I'm kind of Biden, the resume, the resume type, criteria uh, should work for Biden, you know, like experience, the, his experience as a vice president, his experience as a senator, you know, as a as an even hand, um, you know, as a, I guess a counterbalance to Trump. So he, he was pointing to that, the you know, the steady path that that, uh, that a Biden would, would give. And um, so, yeah, I, I think, it, I think overall it was probably was a pretty good um, get, so to speak, for for Biden and I will say that it, it was a good sized crowd. Um, it was a middle middle of the day event and on a weekday, and it was a hundred people. I and I don't I don't know about you guys, but the surrogates that I cover up here, you know, you're lucky to get a couple dozen people for some of these surrogates, the national surrogates that are coming through. So, um, I think people respected, you know, Carrie and wanted to come out and hear hear what he said, and therefore I, you know, I, I would think it would accrue somewhat well for Biden. So, uh, will any candidate bring in? Hillary Clinton as a surrogate before the caucuses. I don't. I don't know that Hillary Clinton will ever come to Iowa again. <laughs> Maybe not. She, yeah. It's not her favorite place, <laughs> for one thing, and and you know. So. Okay. She won't be back. <laughs> <laughs> We're on a travel ban list. Aaron, uh, you wrote about Clomentum this week, and um, is Clomentum? For real, or is this sort of the storyline of of the week um, for people covering campaigns? Not not that I would ever accuse you of, you know, stooping to the storyline of the week, but <laughs> right. I appreciate that uh, disclaimer. Um, it it's real in so far as we can tell, um, and what I mean by that is we've had a. Uh, kind of a, a state-level polling desert here for um, man going on about a month now. Um, so so it's difficult to discern. I covered an event in the suburbs here in Des Moines where she had more than 500 people. Uh, her campaign said that's pretty safe to say that's the biggest crowd she's seen. Um, and, and she's been in this race a long time. So, so there's definitely more interest in her right now that, that, that seems to be on the uptick. And, and she saw some bigger crowds, uh, uh throughout the state on, on that weekend too. Um, does that mean more people are putting her as their top pick or, or top one or two? That's where it's tougher to know because of this lack of polling that we've had, uh, lately. It sounds like we're finally going to get a new Iowa poll. Um, later this afternoon, we're taping Friday morning, uh, Friday afternoon, we're going to get a new Iowa poll. So we're going to start to see some new numbers that will help us discern that. Um, but as of right now, it's an anecdotal thing. Um, and, um, you do hear when you go to events and even other candidates events, you're starting to hear her name come up a little more often. And like I said, her, her events are drawing a little more interest. So, so people are at least, you know, Given her a chance, given her a look, whether that's going to translate to support uh, it remains to be seen. It seems pretty clear that fewer people on the debate stage uh, in December worked to her advantage. Um, she had more speaking time, more time to lay out her thoughts. And in fact, as I recall, um, she was second to Sanders in the speaking time. 
Can she do that again next week, or will she be the pinata other candidates are swinging at, sort of like what happened to Pete Buttigieg in the December debate? Yeah, I, I would be surprised if it, it gets to that point with her yet, because um, unless, you know, this Iowa poll comes out and all of a sudden she's, you know, right in there with the other leaders, um, it, it, which she, that would be a pretty significant jump from even, even when she was starting to build momentum in previous polling, she was still down around like 5%. So um, unless she all of a sudden makes this gigantic leap to, um, to the, the teens and up 20% where the other leaders are, I don't think that they will feel the need to um, attack her necessarily. So she could have another opportunity. And there's one less person probably on this debate stage because it looks like um, Andrew Yang um, may not qualify. So uh, there's even one fewer candidates up there. Um, uh, So she's got even a little more airspace to, to, and and, and you're right. She was, um, she took advantage of that and, and, got her speaking time and, and I would suspect that she will make every effort to, to make that happen again. Um, as even if she is experiencing a surge, a little bit of momentum right now, um, she's starting from, from a, a, a lower spot. And so she's still introducing herself to a lot of democratic voters. So I'm sure she, she will feel compelled to, um, get as much airtime as possible in that debate to, to continue to, to make her case to voters. Todd, what, what should we expect for, from from this debate? Um, I mean, this is like you know the last debate before the caucuses, so I guess it's critical in that sense. Um, does Sanders go at Biden hard? Uh, he's been critical of Biden recently. Does everyone go at Buttigieg? Can Warren get her mojo back? And does Biden uh, avoid gaffes and self-inflicted wounds by not speaking at all? I don't know that his campaign has figured out yet how to stop him from talking, but if they have, that could be a big, a big uh, moment in the race. Uh, you know, it, I, I think the Iowa poll will will have some bearing if, if one of the three that were tied in the CBS poll, if one of them puts a little daylight between some others, you might see candidates go after that person that's perceived to be, the the clear front runner. If there is no clear front runner. I mean, you, you may see these candidates sort of look at their support and say, maybe I should make a strong case for my ideas and for what I do as president, try to avoid looking too cranky and attacky, I guess, and maybe try to solidify my support and get one of those, you know, the proverbial three, four, five tickets, whatever it's going to be. Uh, at this late date, they may just figure that attacks aren't going to really move the needle much and it might just backfire on them. Uh, and I think, you know, for Sanders, his... I think, you know, part of the reason he's been a little stronger lately is I think he's been out there, you know, hammering his message, which is, you know, he's he's the the real progressive choice. Elizabeth Warren stumbled a bit when she kind of tried to recalibrate her Medicare for all and some of those things. And I think that soured on some voters. So Sanders may conclude that he needs to solidify that progressive end of the of the of the electorate and, and, and hopefully or, you know, ride them to, to victory as he almost did in 2016. So, uh, yeah, you, you expect that there's going to be some, some shots back and forth. Buttigieg is probably going to take some more because I, I think there's a feeling that he's going to have a strong finish and, and, uh, uh, he's taken quite a bit of, uh, criticism in the last few weeks. So I, I would expect some, some back and forth, but I do think that, you know, some of the candidates will, will view this as a, as a chance to, to, 
make the make the case for their candidacy and to solidify the support they've got. If you're not on the d- debate stage next week, are you out of this race in Iowa and overall? Well, you're you're likely out of contention. You're maybe still in the race because you just you just can't figure out how to get out of it. I, <laughs> or you don't want to or you like running for president very much and having people pay attention to you. So, uh but yeah, I mean I I think the folks that are going to be on the debate stage are are that's that's the group where a nominee is going to come out of. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of grumbling in Iowa about the DNC rules winnowing the field. But I, I honestly think in some ways concentrating this has, has made it has made Iowans caucusing job easier. It was pretty daunting a while ago with two dozen candidates. And now they can focus. Does it make the decision by caucus goers um, more important or impactful? Um, I mean, if you think about, you know, splitting it, you know, 20 ways and, you know, sort of not having any clear winners, uh, you know, people winning with maybe single-digit <laughs> numbers or something like that. Uh, now you, you've got a, a manageable number of candidates, and, and it seems like a decision coming out of the caucus will be more meaningful. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's pretty likely that whoever finishes in the top three or maybe four, I mean, the nominee is going to come from that group, unless something really strange happens. The other uh, news on the political front in Iowa is the legislature convenes Monday in Des Moines. Uh, Legislative leaders will deliver speeches about the opportunities to find bipartisan solutions to whatever ails Iowa. Tuesday, we'll hear from Governor Kim Reynolds in her condition of the state speech. Wednesday will be the condition of the judiciary, which should be interesting considering the changes the legislature made in the judicial nominating process as well as the death of Supreme Court Justice Chief Justice Mark Cady. Senior Justice David Wiggins will deliver the condition of the judiciary. Todd, um, what should we expect from Wiggins and from this speech? Will it be sort of a, a caretaker speech, an interim leader dutifully delivering the annual report, or uh, is he likely to take this opportunity to tweak the GOP-controlled legislature and the governor um, for their judicial activism yeah, in shaping the court. Well, I I would expect for the most part that it's going to be a standard condition of the judiciary speech. Although, you know, I I think there may be at least some hints or some you know veiled uh, remarks about that subject about the you know the sort of the politicizing of the court. Uh, there's you know there's some conventional wisdom that you know well there's 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 some questions as to how long. Wiggins is going to remain on the court, whether he's going to retire at some point soon. And uh, so, or at least within the next few years. So, you know, before he faces retention again. And if that's the case, maybe he, you know, I I know he probably has strong feelings about it. So we may see some of that. But as as sort of the interim and in the transition period, I would be sort of surprised if he kind of, uh, you know, unleashed a, a diatribe on judicial politicization. But who knows? It's 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 you know, it's worth uh, it's worth checking it out to see what happens. I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. You've been talking to lawmakers about what they expect and what they want to get done this year. Um, what uh, what's on their agendas? What seems to be? Are there any common goals? Sure. Yeah. And, and bear in mind that of of for the people that I've talked to, so we have sixteen uh, um, House and Senate members that that we 
cover up here in Sioux City, and 13 of those are Republicans. So um, it, it, it's skewed on you know the people I'm talking to, but so it was heavy on heavy on tax cuts. But I would say overall um, um, tax cuts, um, definitely education spending, and then um, also um, workforce development were, were things that were mentioned frequently uh, among the people that that uh, I was able to speak with and. Yeah, I would say it was it's somewhat surprisingly broad too. Um, that there also was things like uh, mental health, tinkering with the mental health um, <clears throat> system. And I, excuse me. Um, and I know I think Aaron's written about this a few times as well. But we up here in, in Northwest Iowa, there are a couple of mental health regions that are having trouble keeping together and, and I guess having divorces and, and breaking apart and, and grouping into new groups and counties coming and going with that. And part of the, uh, of the mental health also is this year there's an, an el- new element where the regions have to um, have more services for young people, or I'm sorry, I think high school people, uh, high school kids. So um, that is was mentioned by a few, but again, it's pretty heavy on uh, taxes such as cutting income tax was was uh, one example, and um, another thing is is obviously education spending is is such a is such a big important thing in in Iowa, and um, the legislators up here we're talking about that, and and I also cover the Sioux City School Board, so I know um, um, the school board wants more than. Uh, the last three years, I think um, allowable growth was 1%, 1.1, and 2%. So, and those are historically low amounts. <laughs> and I know that the Sioux City School District they want more than that. And they and what they what they always want is for the legislature to make those decisions earlier rather than late because um, the school districts always have to set their budgets by April. And 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 when it gets strung out so late into the to the year, then that that is it, hard on the school districts. Aaron, uh, you, you've written about some of the hot but- button issues, the the hand grenades that could derail the session. Um, what uh, uh, surprises should we be watching for? Yeah, there there are a few that that will be um, interesting. Um, I, I don't know that any um, could necessarily derail the session, especially especially as long as you have. <clears throat> pardon me especially as long as you have um, uh, unified control, Republican majorities in both the House and Senate, um, and then a Republican governor. Um, even the contentious items um, shouldn't be so much so that they, you know, cause it uh, legislators that have a, a difficult time getting their work done uh, for the session. Um the minority Democrats may make some noise about some things along the way, but but they're um, to, to hold those things up. So if Republicans have something they want to do, they'll, they'll just do it. Um, um, but there could be a few things that um, it, that um, make for some interesting debates. Um, one I'll be watching for is um, Medicaid work requirements. That was something that uh, Senator Jason Schultz and, and the, um, a Republican uh, pushed a few different bills along those lines last year. And um, Ultimately, had to table them because of um, some issues and and uh, not enough support within his own caucus and some and some lack of clarity on those. But uh, got the impression that there would be an effort to bring those back again um, next year. So that's something we'll be watching out for, and that's something that uh, ignites some strong feelings among Democrats. Um, 
gun legislation will be interesting. They they passed the uh, first step of the um, constitutional amendment uh, last year, but there's also still um, a desire for uh, a bill that would eliminate the the need to to have a permit to carry. Um, so so be interesting to hear if that one comes up again. Um, uh, so, so those are the kind of issues that could really kind of, you know, um, light a fire under things uh, up there in the Capitol for a week or two at a time. But again, as, as, even with that, as long as there's un, unified party control, I don't see anything um, that would uh, um, really upset the session schedule. And James, this is Brett. Um, I had two two lawmakers as to what as what Aaron just said. There, there's uh, two that specifically mentioned that that hand uh, the gun legislation as being one of their priorities. So yeah, I think he's right that that's the potential for that is is going to be there. Well, we'll keep an eye on that, uh, Todd. It's an election year. The conventional wisdom is that Demo- Republicans will want to pass a tax cut, make Democrats take some bad votes to be used against them on the campaign trail. And get the heck out of Des Moines in time for spring planting and campaigning? Or uh, do you see opportunities for bipartisan agreement that will make Iowa an even better place to live, work, and raise a family? Uh, no. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but really, no. Uh, actually, you know, there's, there's, some, there's, some, uh, there's some talk about doing something about child care. And this is a you know something that Democrats are concerned about. Republicans are concerned about as a workforce development issue. It's no secret that you know that if the if the Republicans are going to have a hard time keeping their majority, it's going to be in battles in suburban areas and with and with women voters. So it's not surprising that they're bringing up child care and some of these issues. And so in those on those issues where you know Republicans who control the House and Senate think that they can maybe get some votes in those suburban areas, those will be the probably the places where Democrats might sign on and say, yeah, this is a good idea. We appreciate, you know, getting rid of the child care cliff where people get a raise and then they lose their child care assistance and, and, you know, smoothing that out so that they can advance at their jobs and not have that abrupt, you know, problem with, with, with affording child care. Uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this, with regard to tax cuts, how this uh, idea of filling the natural resources outdoor recreation trust fund with a three eighths of a penny and using the rest of that for sales or for a possible tax cut of some type income property. Uh, you know, there are a lot of Democrats that want that environmental funding. I, I guess it'll come down to whether the Republicans and the governor sort of rip up the funding formula that was passed back in 2010 that gives a lot of money to the D- to DNR programs and outdoor recreation less to the Department of Agriculture, whether they rip that up and sort of shove a lot more of that money toward the Department of Agriculture, which is sort of a more farmer-friendly agency as with regard to water quality problems. So uh, if, if they don't tear up the formula and just sort of adjust it in some way that can be bipartisan, you might see some Democrats interested in that. But uh, if they're, if they're going to take that sales tax and give it to large landowners – both in the form of water quality grants and in a property tax cut. I don't know that you'll see a lot of Democrats get on board with that. One final note before we go. Uh, one of our fans emailed to say that although he enjoys the podcast, he wishes we wouldn't talk about <laughs> Steve King. <laughs> he said, okay. I would prefer to see him fade into the obscurity he deserves. 
Well, if he does, we'll talk about that on a future edition of On Iowa Politics. Wow. If, if you do that, then I have to fade it in obscurity because there will be no reason for me to be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there will always be a reason, Brett. Hey, he's got two town halls coming up in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that's one wish we're not going to be able to grant. Well, maybe we have to just think up uh, something else to, so we don't use the word Steve King. Oh, okay. Could, you know, think yeah. of a, a, a code name, a yeah. Gnome Day podcast, something yeah. like that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> well, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope it's been worth your time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. Send fam, fan mail to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. And you can find us every week on the home pages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. William Elliott Whitmore will take us out. If you know a band or talented Iowa musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Aaron, Brett, Amy, Todd, and our producer Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Our Saturday night bonanzas are known from here to Kansas as being the thing to do. We like to pass around that shine, get everybody feeling fine, drinking that good old South Lee County brew. Oh, put it to your lips and take a little nip. Oh, you know your bell is wrong when you can't feel your tongue And all you did was take a little sip Oh, tip back the jar So good so far and we'll drink until we don't know what to do Oh, we'll hoop and we'll holler and we'll take another swallow Of that good old South Lee County brew Another batch will be done soon And we'll be howling at the moment What tomorrow brings I haven't got a clue All I know is tonight I'll be feeling alright With my bottle of South Lee County brew Oh, put it to your lips And take a little nip Oh, you know your bell is wrong When you can't feel your tongue And all you Take a little sip Oh, tip back the jar So good so far And we'll drink until we don't know what to do Oh, we'll hoop and we'll holler We'll take another swallow Of that good old South Lee County brew Some folks say that the jar's half empty Some folks say that the jar's half full And some folks like me don't give a damn As long as I get another pull Oh, tip back the jar So good so far And we'll drink until we don't know what to do Oh, we'll hoop and we'll holler We'll take another swallow of that good old South Lee County brew. Oh, we'll dance a little jig and we'll take another swig of that good old South Lee County brew.